Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, um, we submit ourselves to your word because as Christians, there is no greater identity for us than creatures of the word. It is you, not your Bible that saves us, but without your word, without a God who communicates, we are without hope. So for anyone who is here today, whether they're Christian, whether they think they're Christian, or whether they are seeking more knowledge on what it means to be a Christian, we know that we have landed in the right spot because you have communicated to us regarding your son, and you seek to call us to faith in him. We pray this in your name. Amen. So are you a pessimist or are you an optimist? Are you a glass half empty kind of guy or a glass half full kind of guy? It's my firm conviction that nothing reveals your worldview. That is, are we getting progressively better or are we getting progressively worse like the Christmas season? I have a beautiful, lovely wife and every year around Thanksgiving, she begins to shape shift into a zealous and impassioned version of Cindy Lou Who. Meanwhile, there's another person in our house who will remain nameless, who identifies more with the less lovable, often misunderstood Grinch. And every year before our children's eyes, conflicts and worldviews collide. The crucible of curmudgeon is constantly accosted by the greenery and glitter and guilt of ruining our children's childhood. And this, this worldview, this, are we getting better? Are we getting worse? Are things happy? Are things less than ideal, collide. And have you ever wondered why a battle exists? Why two people who are so seemingly alike are so incredibly different? Why is it that as we break for the holiday seasons, we find new traditions, we go back to old wells of joy, that conflict, sorrow, death, and darkness never seem to keep the same schedule as us? While we change and create breaks, those never do. You see, whether it's wrestling with a cantankerous husband about how quickly the lights should go up, or whether it's putting on a cheery face while deep pain, wounds, and anxious worry eat at the soul underneath, we know what it's like to live in a world embroiled in conflict. As we slow down to celebrate Advent, that's the long-awaited birth of Jesus Christ, we encounter uh, a story today answers those questions of conflict, not merely at a theoretical level, but actually at a practical level that changes the way you live and interact with your world and with your own heart. So will it get better or will it get worse? And how do we make sense of things in the meantime? In order for us to highlight the birth of Jesus during this Advent season, we're going to spend four Sundays looking at four significant births in the Old Testament. And we're going to see how each of those births prepare us and teach us more about the significance and wonder of the birth of Jesus Christ. And if this is your first time dropping into Sovereign Hope, you came for a joyous Christmas Advent series, opening up with the story of Cain and Abel might seem like an odd place to start. But it's actually in witnessing the first, the second, and the third birth in human history that we are going to see the need and necessity of the birth of Jesus Christ. This story highlights not only the centrality of Jesus in the Bible, but the centrality of Jesus needed in your own life. And what we're going to see today in Genesis 4 is this. This is going to be our main point. The hope of man is deliverance from hope 
in man. The hope of man, the hope we sing of in all of our Advent songs is the hope of, or is, is deliverance from hoping in man. And we're gonna see this in three points as we look at the story of Cain and Abel. First, we're gonna see the subtlety of sin as we examine a hope distorted. And then we're going to see the dark spiral of sin in the legacy of Cain as we see hope destroyed. And lastly, when all seems to have gone wrong, we see the promise of hope delivered. But we'll be in Genesis 4 today, which if you have your Bible, it's so encouraging when Johnny was reading to see many of you looking down on your phones or your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we have some at the info desk, please take it. And this is in the opening portions of scripture. And so to understand what's going on in Genesis 4, we need to understand what happens in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. After God created a perfect world and created Adam and Eve, he made them in a perfect relationship with him. There was wonderful shalom. There was peace everywhere, peace with man and nature, peace between man and woman, and peace between humanity and God. But the devil snuck into that perfection and deceived them. You see, there was one tree that God prohibited Adam and Eve to eat from, and he said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And what God gave them as a gracious restriction, the devil twisted into a sinister scheme by God to mute the joy of Adam and Eve. And maybe you've experienced these kind of lies before when you encounter the God of Scripture, his commands to us. God doesn't want what's best for you, says Satan. He's holding out on you. Your life would flourish if you could just break the bonds of what God has told you. He's holding you back. He's limiting your freedom. He's stealing your joy. And yet what we see in Genesis 3 is that Adam and Eve ate from the tree. And everything that God said was true. And everything that the devil said was false. They sinned and immediately they became spiritually dead. All the peace that existed between them and nature, them and each other, them and God, it was shattered. But in a remarkable turn of events, God comes to them in the midst of their sin and does something amazing. He doesn't kill them. Though they would be spiritually separated from the presence of God, removed from the Garden of Eden on account of their sin, God allowed them to live. But why? Because God also promised to make a way back to the garden. He promised that one day the serpent, the deceiver, would be crushed forever. He promised to redeem himself all that Adam and Eve broke. And look at how he gives this promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God is cursing the serpent. Look at what he says in Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity, that's conflict, that's strife, between you and the woman. So that's between the serpent, the devil, and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so what God is saying is that one day, an offspring of Eve would enter into this conflicted world, but he would crush the head of the serpent. He would bruise his head. He would stomp out darkness through Eve. Though she was deceived first, God would grant salvation according to what? His mercy. This was so significant that Adam understood this and Eve lived under this as the centerpiece of her identity. Look at Genesis 3 verse 20. Then man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And so Adam named his wife Eve, which is, sounds like the Hebrew word for life giver. Both of these understood 
that on account of God's promise, all life, all restoration would come because God would give the gift of an offspring. Mercy would be given through the offspring of Eve. And so this tragedy of sin, coupled with this hope of the serpent crusher offspring, is the immediate context to what we encounter today in Genesis chapter 4, which is where we see our first point, hope distorted. Hope distorted. And perhaps as you listen to Genesis 4 read for you today, you picked up the theme pretty easily. The theme is everything fell apart. It went terribly wrong. But as you listen to it, and as we read it again together today, I want you to listen. Where did things start going wrong? What was the first sign that things were not getting better, but that things were actually getting worse? See, what's interesting is the serpent is found nowhere in this passage. But the echo of the serpent's lie is present everywhere in the heart of humanity. Notice where this passage begins in Genesis 4, verses 1 and 2. Now Adam knew, his, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Did you see it? We just ran into it. It's subtle. But by the end of our text today, what we just read will glow like Rudolph's nose. Because here we see the subtlety of sin. In order to find it, we need to, to employ a really helpful Bible study tool. And so we have our Bible reading app. There's gonna be a new plan coming out this January. We wanna help you guys study God's word. And a really helpful tool when you're studying God's word is to ask yourself one simple question. What do I know? What do I know up until this point? And what we know shapes what we're maybe uncertain of. It helps us understand what's going on in the text. So what do we know up to this point in Genesis 4? We know that Adam and Eve failed. We know that God in his mercy allowed them to live. We know that God in his grace promised he would defeat the devil through the offspring of Eve. We also know that sexual intimacy existed before the fall in Genesis 2, when a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, became one flesh in marriage. But we also knew out of all the times that Adam and Eve could have been intimate, it wasn't until this very moment that the God who had mercy, that the God who promised grace used his power to open the womb of Eve. And what does Eve say? I have gotten, and God helped. I've been in the delivery room for our four children, and never once after any of those births did people and nurses stream in and congratulate me on my effort and my labor. Why? Because I did comparatively nothing compared to Sarah. Sarah did the work. But after what we just read in Genesis chapter 3, don't we know who did the work? It was the mercy of God, the grace of God, and the power of God that would reach through the darkness, reach through the death, and produce a savior from Eve, which means Eve's comment here is just as tone deaf as I would be as nurses come in and start giving me ice chips and tying balloons on my wrist after my children are born. You see, after the devil planted the lie of our name being as great as God's name, the subtle virus of sin continued to stain the hearts of Adam and Eve. Eve entered into a neat partnership with God, right? 
I have gotten, the Lord has helped. But there was a total lack of prioritization of God. Sure, he was involved, but Eve, Eve did the real work. This comes to the surface all the more when we consider, if you have footnotes in your Bible, that the name Cain sounds like the Hebrew word gotten or possessed. His name, every time she looks at Cain and thinks about his name, she is reminding herself what I have gotten, what I have possessed, what I have done. And this is advanced when we see the birth of the second child, Abel. When Abel's born, he's almost, even to us, just as we read it in English, an afterthought. But if you notice it, he's not actually called the child of Eve. He's just Abel's brother. It's as if Eve doesn't even care. And what is lost on us on English readers is the word Abel is the exact same word in Hebrew as the word vanity, vapor, fleeting. Abel was nothing. Why? Eve did it. She did the thing. She righted her own ship. She took control of her destiny. I have gotten and the Lord has helped. Nothing else matters. I did what I needed to do. So let this be a warning to all of us. Sin does not need the heart of an atheist to grow. Sin does not need you to condemn your faith in God merely to compromise. And that's what Eve does here. She knows she should speak of God, seek God, go to church, commune with God. But it's mostly the Eve show. I've gotten, God has helped. You see, the lie that Satan gave that you will be like God, continues to get legs in Adam and Eve's heart. And it has legs in your life today as well. But we see where this leads. As Eve's pride and joy, Cain, the one whom she has gotten, shows the dangerous trajectory of this compromise. Read with me Genesis 4, verses 3 through 7. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So it's important for us to note at this point We'll talk more about this when we begin our Bible survey series beginning in January, that we're on page, what is this, page four of my Bible. There's no system of sacrifices in place here. That'll develop as the story of scripture goes on. And so what we have here is an example of the same desire that's actually at the play at play in each and every one of your hearts. Did you know that? That actually in seeing this text, you're seeing a glimpse into your own heart. What motivated this sacrifice was a simple awareness that God is worthy of the whole of our lives. That we ought to give to something that is glorious. The awe we have when we're inspired by something bigger than ourselves, the desire to be part of something large, to be in amazement of a movie that enraptures us, to be smitten by the love of our life, are all traces of the image of God. We were made to give ourselves to something bigger. And both Cain and Abel 
out of that desire, set out to sacrifice to God. Pay attention. We're all here in church. There's all sorts of assumptions we carry when we do this. But Cain was not a non-believer. He didn't go and sacrifice to an idol, and Abe went and sacrificed to God. They both sacrificed to the same God. But here we see another difference. Just like his mother, Cain entered into another partnership without a, with a failure to prioritize. Cain offered some, yet what we see is Abel offered more. He offered the first fruit of his flock and of their fat portions. Cain gave out of a motivation to include God in his life, but not because God was the motivation of his life. Do you see the subtle distinction there? Cain gave out of a motivation to include God in his life. He's God. We should probably include him. But he didn't give because God was the motivation of his life. Is that you? Because here we actually see how this is brought to light in our own hearts. It's actually the sincerity of another, that is Abel's sincerity, that convicts Abel. See, Abel didn't look at what, or convicts Cain. Abel didn't look, Cain didn't look at Abel's sacrifice and say, he gave as I have given. He looked and noticed that Abel gave out of a position of sincere worship and realized that he himself had held back. Abel was a threat to Cain's disingenuous offering, and what did he become? Very angry. Anger can be caused by many, many things. But if anger is in our hearts at all, it is often the first warning sign that something is wrong with your relationship, not with others, but with God. Even though he looked the part, he would have walked back when Johnny said and put his thing in the offering box. His heart was far from God. And if that's you, look at the character of God in this text. God comes to Cain and he counsels him. He says, if you're upset, if you're angry, if your face has fallen, do what's good. That's the joy, make it right. Offer a right sacrifice. Submit the whole of your life to me and you will find joy. And what God is showing here is there is a competing desire of hopes. Sin desires you. It offers a false hope that if you can withhold from God and merely partner with him, if you can maintain the security of your own bounty, the majority of your own heart, that you can get everything you've ever wanted by being co-equal with him, of saying, I have gotten and God has helped. And God says to that desire, you must what? Master it. You must not believe that lie. And instead, what should you do? Do well. Do what is righteous. Look at how the New Testament writers speak of this as we understand more of Cain's heart. In 1 John 3, verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain knew at that moment he had two hopes. One, be mastered by a prioritization of God and joyfully offer the best of your life to him and in so doing, find pleasure. Or two, be mastered by sin and hope to preserve what's best 
for yourself. That's what's presented to Cain. That's God's wise counsel to you today. But we read what happens in verses 3 through 16. I'm actually going to pick up in verse uh, 8. So we'll look at 8 through 16. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And actually, it's unclear in the Hebrew. It sounds like he's inviting him here to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So what did Cain do in the face of these two hopes? Instead of humbling himself and submitting his name under the worship of God, Cain thinks he could solve the problem by killing Abel. Why? Because if our worldview is this, we're all competing for God's pleasure. It depends on who pleases God the most. Then we view people as tools or threats. We can't escape it. Tools that we want to keep weak people around us because we look better, therefore God must be more pleased with us, or threats in that whoever seems to be outperforming us needs to be eradicated and eliminated. And so Cain says, there are two competing people for God's pleasure, Make it one, and I have one. So he kills Abel. This is the hope distorted. If God's pleasure is what we need to be happy, which is what God himself just said, then we need to do what we need to, whatever we can, to earn God's pleasure by any means possible. We work harder, we foster violence, we strive to be seen as greater, but, in God, but God's pleasure, that is God's grace, we already see in this text, is never a result of our works, only a result of our worship. And this terrible inversion leads to our second point today, hope destroyed. Cain is confronted in what we just read once more by God, and he's cursed. Just as his father and mother were cursed, here their firstborn, the one who is supposed to be the, the snake crusher, the one who Eve had gotten, is cursed again. He's moved further from the Garden of Eden, than even Adam and Eve were. And notice God's specific curse. It was this. One, you're cut off from the presence of God. Two, you're cut off from the land. And what does God say? He says, you will be a wanderer, a nomad, and a fugitive, finding no home. But Cain hears this, and he has fear. He says, if I have no home, if I have no security, then whoever finds me will kill me. But you see the character of God, even to this murderous rebellion. Rebeller? Rebel? Rebel? That's the word. Rebel. (laughs) He says, not so. If anyone kills you, I will avenge you. I will protect you. And he puts a mark on Cain. 
And all that's supposed to mean is that there was something kind of like a wedding ring. I don't know what it was. God hasn't shown us. But when Cain looks at it, he's to remember that God has promised him security. That God was watching over him. But what does Cain do immediately? This is where reading your Bible is so fantastic. God says what? Be a wanderer and I will protect you. But what does Cain do immediately? Settles in the land of Nod. He doesn't wander like God told him to. He settles. And in this wonderful twist of irony, he settles in the land of Nod, which literally means the land of wandering. And what does he do there? He begins a family and builds a city. Look at verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he had built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. He built a city. Why? Because it's easier to trust in the security of the city you can see than in the God you can't. And more than that, do you notice the repetition of the word name? He called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. What do we know? Despite God's grace to not destroy Adam and Eve, despite God's grace to grant Eve a child, despite God's grace to help Cain before he murdered Abel, despite God's grace to not kill Cain immediately, despite God's grace to protect sinful Cain, Cain rebels against God all the more and builds a city in the legacy of whose name? His name. The lie of the serpent grows into human history and Cain's hope is in the legacy of Cain. Apart from God's gracious revelation into our lives, this is where all of us start. This is ground zero for you. That we are our own hope. That our legacy is our own safety. This is what causes us as infants to desire what our siblings have. It's what makes us today covet the houses or careers of our neighbor. It's what drives us to pornography and greed. We want to take what is ours because the bigger we are, the more secure we are, the more comfortable we are, the more insulated we are, the more real our hope is in what we have gotten. But this passage highlights the danger of such a hope. It paints a pessimistic picture of human history because it appears that despite God's promise to send redemption through the offspring of Eve, that everything has gone wrong that the offspring has been spoiled and the other one slaughtered and hope is lost. Two sons, one righteous, one realized the folly of their parents and prioritized God's name above everything and what did he get for it? Murdered. The older brother, the one who Eve had gotten, the supposed crusher of the serpent's head was mastered by the serpent he was supposed to crush. Just as his parents rejected God's counsel, so too did Cain. Just as Eve was warned of a desire in her own heart that was contrary to her husband, Cain was ruled by sin whose desire was contrary to him. Just as Adam was cursed from the ground up, so too is Cain cursed from the ground up. What are we as readers of this history supposed to experience in our gut? It's happening again. The same thing, the same mistake, the same curse. And the latter part of this passage focuses on Cain's family tree, specifically his great-grandson, Lamech. And notice how the trickle of sin turns into a river of darkness. 
Genesis 4, 19 through 24. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of instruments of bronze and iron, so instruments that's, we're not talking about a brass section here, we're talking about tools. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zilhah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And so what do we see here? Lamech makes Cain look like a choir boy. He already breaks God's commands for marriage, one man and one woman, and what does Lamech do? He takes two. And in a drastic show of arrogance, he begins, I want you, husband, to go home to hopefully your one wife, if you are here, And just start a song and say, listen here, wife of Tyler. And just see how that goes right there. Just in the opening words. Things have gone horribly wrong. It gets worse for Lamech. He sings a song promoting what? Speaking in the third person of his own name. And he boasts in the endless nature of his wickedness. Cain murdered his brother. Lamech is here boasting of his own power to kill multiple men, even young men. Even greater than Cain's revenge, which was promised by Yahweh himself in all of his power and righteousness, Lamech boasts in his ability to exceed even the power of God in judgment. He is bloodthirsty, he is brutal, and he is all that is left. Jude writes this in Jude verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. Bloodthirsty and dark is the legacy of hope in man. Brutal is the wound of sin. Do you see your gain in this text? Do you see the empty promise of living life for the fame of your own name? Do you see the effect of the effort of all that you might accomplish for yourself to have gotten hope by the power of your own work and your own word? Do we need to wonder why darkness exists in our world? You see, our world, this Genesis 4, in the heart of Cain, when God reveals it to him is the first time the word sin is mentioned in Scripture. How does our world speak of sin today? We often talk of it as a sacred pleasure. Fried chicken sandwiches, so good, it's sinful. Sin City, the place for the adult who wants it all. But sin's slope, unlike its promise, is destructive, bloodthirsty, and damning. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what you believe about this doctrine of sin, what theologians call depravity. But I know this, regardless of what you think about God and regardless of what you think about sin, you share the experience of this text, don't you? You know the limits of hope in man. If you're a student of history, you know the devastation at a global level of World War II. World War I was dubbed the war to end all wars. Humanity had never seen it. And on the opposite side of it, what happened? 
Medicine, technologies, and economies flourished at a global level. Jubal played his pipe. Jabal cooked delicious foods. Tubal Cain used his tools to make our walls bigger and our houses safer. We had done it. We had come together. Man had rid the world of our problems. But then World War II happened. All the technological advances we turned to for deliverance were weaponized, politicized, and turned against us, ushering in the bloodiest war in human history. Today in Iran, social media is being used to overturn evil governments for good. And yet in our own homes, it enslaves teenagers to peer pressure and cyberbullying and puts pornography in the distant dark corners of our homes. Our cities are more connected than ever to a global economy, but our doors are getting smaller and our locks are getting stronger. If the hope of humanity is in the name of Cain, we are destined for the song of Lamech. Is this the best there is? Is this our greatest hope? Certainly there has to be something more. We know the pain better than we know the peace. We know anxiety better than we know affection and jealousy more than we know jubilation. But friends, there is another way because there is another name. Consider this morning our final point, hope delivered. Read with me Genesis 4, 25 through 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Is it obvious to you now? Do you see it? Out of all of the tragedy that plagued Adam and Eve, it's here in this moment that she gets it. You see, the world might tell you that whatever's happened in your past exists only to condemn you. And that's because sin is condemning. Mistakes are real. The punishment of your sin is death. But the revelation of God allows you to look at your history which once condemned you, and by the power of God's grace, it corrects you. I hope that God might give you the vision of Eve here in this text. Do you see it? Do you see how Eve moved from Cain, meaning I had gotten, to her thirdborn, Seth, which means God has appointed? Where Eve only called Cain, if you look back, God has given me a man. She returns back to the promise of Genesis 3.15, where it's not simply mere hope in a man, but it is hope in what? In an offspring, another offspring. You see, it's not the might of man which can save us, but instead offspring according to the promise of God. Even when it seemed all is lost, when humanity blew it again for the second, third, and fortieth time, God kept his word. And after the birth of Seth and his son Enosh, something profound happened. No more was the hope in a man born by Eve. No more was the security in a city in the name of Enosh. No more were the songs set to the brutality of Lamech. But instead, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Do you know what it means 
to call on the name of the Lord. We are all here today. We have all done it. If we've opened our mouth to sing, if we've said an amen in, in unity with those who have been praying, but to call on the name of the Lord is not to say a word. It is a posture of our hearts which shows a universe of difference. That there is something fundamentally different in those who call on the name of the Lord than those who call on the name of man. Another legacy was made possible. A legacy of real change. Hope. Hope not in the promise of sin, but hope in what? In the promise of God. And this legacy meets us this Advent season as we look at how Luke describes the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. In his genealogy, he opens with this in Luke 3, 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, because he was born by the Holy Spirit in Mary, so that's why it says it was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then we proceed for a number of verses, following these sons, following the lineage of Jesus, and where does it end? The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. It was through this line of Seth that God would keep his promise to a world embroiled in darkness. Though Abel's blood and his righteousness was poured out by bloodthirsty hands of his brother, it would be the great-great-grandson of Seth who would give up his life to make many Cains righteous. We are not Abel. We are Cain. We are the ones apart from a righteousness, but we have a brother who came to lay down his life for us. So where do you find your hope this morning? In the name of Jesus and him alone. Do you fear the world is getting worse? Today, one of our founding members of this church in 1968 is in a hospital room where she's been for two weeks, uncertain of what it looks like for her to get out. Sin, darkness, and death rages forward, but there is a way out. There is a hope that God will keep his promise to save by giving you the faith to cry out according to the name of God. And because we have seen that name in the birth of Jesus Christ, we know he is faithful. We know he will keep his promise. We know what it means to be accepted on the basis of this name. And so how do we apply this truth to us this Advent season? Well, first, when it seems this world is darkness and only darkness, God's promise remains. What is going on in your life, in your heart, in your workplace? Like a seed growing in the darkness of winter, spring will come. God's word makes a way. And Advent proves that the long-awaited promise will one day break forth. One day the son who came once will come again and restore what was broken in the garden and bring us back to peace in God. One day his name will be the only name. And two, when it seems if by God's grace you call according to the name of the Lord, you might find yourself surrounded by a world of Cain's a world of hostility against all that is God's, a world that finds your worship to be odd and awkward and even distasteful. But in a world of Cain's, we have a better brother in the flesh. 
We have one who gave himself to save us not only from the fear of death, but from the temptation of Cain, from the subtle lie of inverting hope in God for the weapons of the flesh. When we feel our name threatened, when sin is creeping at our door, when it seems the only weapon we have against darkness is the violence of Lamech, we remember we have another tool. We have Emmanuel himself, who is God with us. A name which cannot be shaken and a legacy which cannot be moved. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you asking you to give us the vision of Eve. Give us an understanding that the hope of all we have is not in what we have gotten, but in what God has appointed. We thank you that what Cain shows us is that though because sin exists, we cannot choose to do what is good. We are stuck. But Christ has chosen for us. He has chosen what is righteous. He has laid down his life to save those who according to the flesh are his brothers, but according to sin are unrighteous. So Lord, give us the hope today to live life in the hope of that name. We pray this in your name. Amen.